At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 647th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is exploring solutions to current water challenges for farming. We're talking with Seth Siegel about water scarcity in agricultural areas. Seth is a serial entrepreneur, water activist, New York Times bestselling author, and the chief sustainability officer for NDRIP. His critically acclaimed award-winning book, Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World, has been published in 20 languages and is on sale in more than 50 countries. His other books are Troubled Water, What's Wrong with What We Drink, and Other People's Words, all produced by St. Martin Press. Welcome to the show today, Seth. Are you ready to rock water? I am ready to rock. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, the path I took is kind of one that I decided on in college years, which was that I never wanted to do too much of any one thing <laughs> for too long. Yep. And I've, you know, I've sort of have lived a life, not a personal life, because I've married to the same woman for a very long time, very happily. But career-wise, I think the world is filled with very interesting opportunities. And I've been in a lot of different places, a lot of different industries, and mostly happily and successfully. But even so, after three, four, five years, I'll say to myself, you know, maybe it's time to pick up and try developing a new set of skills, a new set of insights, a new Rolodex, to use an old-fashioned word, and to just start getting smart about new things. This is the serial entrepreneur part. You and I have the same background. I've had over 30 businesses in my life. I get bored easily. So, you yeah. know, after three or four or five years in a business, I like to transition. So yeah, I hear you. I, it's exactly my thing is that I, I don't know if bored is the right word, but maybe restless is the, is the yeah, word that that's might a describe good word. me. Yep. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's only a, a, in the commercial world. And I would say also in the philanthropic world. I'm very involved in charitable work, but I find myself after a handful of years looking for like a what's next uh, as right. well. Yeah. my Janice, you, you met Janice on the phone. Uh, yes. She always laughs at me because I'm always coming up with, oh my gosh, what if we did this? Or what if we did that? Some new what if that would change the world. Well, I ran a company for, uh, I had a partner, but two of us ran a company for a lot of years. And I was the type of guy who every morning I would come in. And we had a pretty large company. It was office, a lot of cities and, and, and a lot of employees. And I would come in and I would say, you know, I think we should do X. <laughs> <laughs> and we did do X. And it drove the company to pretty long, big successes. Yeah, but yeah. but on, the other, on the other hand, it, it slightly creates whiplash for the people around you. You got right. to be. You, gotta, you have to be mindful of the fact that just because you are a restless person doesn't mean that lots of people wouldn't like to have some stability and continuity. Yeah. Janice resembles that remark for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Janice. So, right. We're talking to you, Janice. 
I don't know where I discovered you. Maybe you guys reached out to me about water issues, but I live in Phoenix, Arizona, in the heart of Arizona with six and a half million people and a huge water problem. And I, you know, I stumbled across your book, Let There Be Water, and it's like, wow, we got to get him because we have a water issue pretty much west of the Mississippi, I think. Oh, yeah. And that's in the U.S. And there's, I mean, we have a global water issue. So let's dive in there. Well, we do. What I what I would like to say, though, is that since you are focused on water and it's focused on farming and agriculture, what I want to say is that the great thing about water problems is that they actually come at you very gently initially. Mm. And they give you lots and lots of lead time. Water problems tend not to be like earthquakes or tornadoes all or right. other things that just rip things up all of a sudden. Water problems come at you slowly enough that if you are wise, if you are careful, if you can look over the horizon, they give you the opportunity to plan and to fix the problem before it becomes a crisis. Now, where you have water crises, whether it's in Arizona or whether it's around the world, and I could talk a lot about the international situation as well as Arizona. When you have a water problem, it generally means that the, that whoever is in charge of governance there, sometimes it's a dictatorship, sometimes it's a democratic society, but whoever's in charge of governance has made the decision, the foolhardy decision, to kick the water cans, as it were, down the down road. The road. And, so, <laughs> right? and, so if, and so if you had said to yourself 15 or 20 years earlier, you know, we see this problem coming. We know there's a problem. Mm-hmm. It's, not like, no, it's, not like, it's not like we woke up this morning and discovered, oh, Arizona, it's a dry place. You know, oh, really? I didn't, know that. <laughs> right? I, didn't, I didn't realize that, you know. So, so if, if we had taken the steps early enough, you wouldn't have the problem. Now, the, the other part of this is, is that it's still, it's late in the game, but it's still not in catastrophe period yet, either in the U.S. or mostly around the world. There are some places where it's borderline catastrophe. But we don't have to get to catastrophe if we are prepared to focus. And that has been the key emphasis of my books, which is I'm solution-driven. And the key solution is, let's. I mean, I have actual suggested ideas, but it's like, first of all, let's get an activated, concerned citizenry thinking about water, getting smart about water, And let's ask of our elected officials that they also begin getting smart about water quality and water scarcity. Yeah. Wow. When I, I, as a side note, I just reached out to the mayor of Phoenix. I, I know someone that works for the mayor of Phoenix. Phoenix has, I don't know, over 4 million people or something crazy like that. Yeah. And well, the greater Phoenix area for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I've started to plug in there to, you know, push an agenda of let's wake up around water because we're not doing any water restrictions. We're not asking anybody to save any water. We're not asking anybody to change about water here in Phoenix, Arizona. And, and that, for me, is that's a red flag, don't you think? Yeah, but, you know, Greg, I'm going to tell you is that it's very, very hard, again, short of crisis, it's yeah. very, very hard for elected officials to ask for restrictions, which is mm-hmm. another way of asking for sacrifices. Yeah. And the better solution, I would argue, and, I, and this permeates both let there be water and troubled water, is the better solution is to not ask people to do things that are a radical or significant change in the way they are doing things today. Rather, it's a way to do it in an evolutionary way. Coercion generally breeds angry responses and a a counterpoint. And also because the fact that there's always a new election coming up, 
There's mm. always some, and I don't want to say that this is true of both political parties, there's always some opportunistic politician who was willing to ride some hot issue as his or her issue in the next election mm. uh, to oppose the incumbent. And therefore, incumbents go into a protective crouch. They don't want to give an issue to their opponent. And so it's easier to do nothing. It's easier to ask little of your constituents than it is to suggest uh, something big. And the best way sense. of all to do that is to help them get to the land of glory in such a way, let's get to the promised land with the easiest route possible. No, I love that. And, you know, in, in our pre-conversation, we talked, I said the Urban Farm Podcast is all about solutions. And you said, you're the man for that. And I, <laughs> and I love that. So let's talk about Let There Be Water and tell us about the book and maybe how it started and, and what the point is. Yeah, so the book Let There Be Water came about in kind of a curious way. I was not a book writer. I had long thought that it would be great if I could find the time. It would be fun to try to write a book. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but I'm a, a, I'm a pretty serious reader. I love to read, and I love to read in a lot of different genres. And I'm curious about different styles of writing, and whether English language or in translation. And it, it was just one of these things where, you know, a, a nice to do, but not a must do of my life would be nice to write a book. So that's, that's sort of point one. Point two is that I consider myself to be a very engaged citizen who cares about public policy issues. I try to get smart about a whole range of issues. And even where it's not something that affects my life day to day, I think it's valuable for, for citizens to try to be, to be self-educated as much as they can so that they can pull the pieces together and see the connections between whether it's tax policy or water policy or defense policy and to see what the points of connectivity are and how you can create a mm. rational sense of governance and how to be a good, good, good citizen. So, so what, anyway, I heard you, what I heard you just say is how do we make positive connections? Yeah, yeah I, I guess. I mean, I'll, I'll accept that. I mean, that's, that's not specifically what I was saying, but I, I think that's a fair interpretation uh -huh. or translation of what I was saying. Anyway, one fine day I attend, I'm a member of a foreign policy think tank called the Council on Foreign Relations. One fine day, I attend a private, you know, everything that was private, but I attended a briefing there by a U.S. government, senior government intelligence official who was sharing the fact that the U.S. government believed with a high degree of certainty that the world was going into a period of water scarcity and it was going to cause all kinds of problems from a national security point of view. But anyway, as luck would have it, that was, you know, I attend a lot of talks and usually it's like for about an hour or two, I'm well engaged and then I oh, let it go. This time, I found myself just completely captivated by it and went back to my office and started Googling around, if you're allowed to use the word as a, as a verb and a, or, or a noun. And, and I started, and I started um, you know, find, trying to find myself um, what this all meant. So that's, part, that's the second part. The third part of this is that very weekend, I'm very friendly with a number of elected officials of both parties, actually. And I was on the phone with a U.S. senator who sits on the U.S. Intelligence Committee. And I shared with him my concern about this intelligence report, this declassified intelligence report that I've been exposed to. And he had no idea of its existence. And he had no wow. idea. He had no idea that there was a water crisis coming. He had no idea. And he's a good guy. He's generally well-informed. He's, you know, he's a solid guy. His name, most, I think most of your listeners would know pretty well. And I found myself thinking, hmm. This is pretty problematical. If someone who's one of our leaders doesn't know about this. Right. And, and so I started, I started looking to learn more about the problem. But as I, we both agreed a minute or two ago, we we're very solutions driven. I didn't want to just, you know, complain and whine and, and, and 
you know, just say what a terrible problem we have and not to come up with solutions. So I started looking for solutions to all the global water problems. And here was the shocker. But I discovered that nearly every single water solution was either invented in or comes out of with improvement in Israel. Really? And the reason, and the reason why that was so shocking to me was I had been to Israel and I knew the country was a very dry place. I knew mm -hmm. that there was only rain that falls for a few months in the winter. I knew that it's a very rapidly growing population and it's a very dynamic economy, which usually two indicators of the fact that, that there's going to be water scarcity, as mm -hmm. you see in Arizona, you know, fast growing economy, fast growing population. Yep. Uh-oh, we're running out of water. So that normally is a problem. And indeed, Israel has suffered terribly from climate change. They've lost about a third of their water, 30% of their water over the last 25, 30 years. Wow. And I thought to myself, wow, they should be a water basket case. But instead, you go to Israel, you think you're in London without the river, but you think you're in London. You turn on the water, you take all the shower you want and so forth. And I thought, how, did, how in the world did they get to this point? So I started reading up on it. And then we get to the final point of the trigger which is, I said to myself, this is a story everybody needs to know. Everybody needs to know what did Israel do? Because with everything Israel did, every country in the world can learn something from that experience. And that's what got me to write the book, Let There Be Water. Because I finally knew what the problem was. I know what the problem was for a, few, for a few years. I finally had the solution to the problem. So that's how the book came to be written. Nice. And can you <clears throat> clue us? So the problem is we're using too much water, we're running out of water, you know, the, we're not paying enough attention to water. What's the solution? Can you kind of key well, us in a little bit? Yeah, well, the, the answer is actually there's a lot of water out there, mm -hmm. but we have to stop thinking about it like it's sunshine or air or some inexhaustible resource. It is a vast but finite resource. Mm -hmm. And therefore we need to figure out ways of using it in a way that's intelligent. Now, sometimes people say, that water is the only commodity in the world which is no replacement. So there's a replacement for oil, you can use gas. If you don't use gas, you can use solar. You don't use solar, you can use wind. You know, there's, there's a replacement for it. You don't want to drink tomato juice, well, you can drink pineapple juice. Right. You know, there's always a solution. There's always a, a, a substitute for everything, they say, except for water. And one of the aha moments I had in my research and writing of my books is the realization that that paradigm of that there's no substitute for water but that's absolutely 100% wrong. The reality is, is that there is a very significant substitute for water, and that is smarter, better water use. <laughs> and that, that involves better governance, market forces, and lots and lots of application of smart technology. And so therefore, you can use the same water molecule over and over again. That's one approach. Or instead of using... 10 buckets of water to achieve a goal, you use one bucket of water to achieve the same goal, but it's totally invisible to the consumer as to the fact that he's now using or she's now using just one bucket. There's an outcome. And so that's the solution for the idea that water has no replacement. Indeed, water does. Nice. What kind of technological solutions are we looking at here? There's technological solutions or technological choices that are large and small. But the first thing you have to do is you have to make a decision as a society that you actually want to start doing what I'm describing here. Because until you make that decision, then you're in a push-pull between the government and industry and the inventor community and academia. And what's going to happen is that inventors are going to say to themselves, 
Well, if I'm going to get the pushback where I'm going to spend two, three, five years working on this invention, I'm never going to recoup my investment, then people are just going to use their genius to invent in some other realm. Mm -hmm. And so, so the first thing is society needs to make a decision and to send a signal out to the fact that we care about water, we care about water savings, we care about water quality, and we're going to do things to make sure that people know that we care about that. That's everything from consumer education to passing some legislation that shows this to indeed finding a way of being welcoming to new ideas. But that said, once you have that, then you have to figure out a way to depoliticize your water conversation and to make it run by technocrats who care about how to get the highest, best use, the largest amount of water, to the largest number of people, the highest quality possible at the lowest price possible. And once you have that decision made and you get the politicians largely out of the equation, you'll do very well. And Israel did both of those things. And Israel also did a third thing. Israel made a decision to use market forces. This may surprise some, some of your listeners who think that they're paying a lot for their water, but almost nobody in the United States is paying the real cost of their water. It's, almost right. sub, it's, it's subsidized almost everywhere and in some places subsidized greatly. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, because of the fact that politicians do not want to put themselves into a position of raising water prices. And so it makes it look like, you know, does that look like a, a tax increase? So it sort of looks like, you know, water prices are, 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 are being, you think you're paying the real price, but you're not. In Israel, they apply market forces by having everyone pay the full and complete price for their water. And that includes sourcing the water, cleaning the water, transporting the water, administering the water. Wow. And, final, and finally, in the equation, Israel is a very, very technologically driven society. They are, obviously, it's an ancient civilization. Israel, you know, goes back thousands of years. I mean, it's a modern state founded in May of 1948, but the, the predecessor nation state goes back thousands of years. But it's also a very new state, and it's a state in ferment and constantly questioning, and that, that feeds to a society that really focuses very much on technological solutions to a variety of problems. And they have, from almost the earliest days of the, of the nation, I, I talk about this in Let There Be Water. From the earliest days in the nation, they began thinking about things like desalination, which wasn't called desalination then, they called it desalting the sea. They were thinking about how they could take sewage, treat it to an ultra high pure level and reuse it. First, they thought of it reusing it for drinking water and then they realized people won't wanna do that. So how do we reuse it just for agriculture? They began thinking about ways, again, this is before GMO crops existed, they began thinking about how they could breed crops that would actually thrive on less water or on crappy water, on, on marginal water that wouldn't otherwise be used. And so doing these different things, thinking about how to reduce the amount of water in agriculture, how to desalinate water, how to reuse water, Israel finds itself today in a situation where, although it is a fast-growing population, a dynamic economy, and a terrible victim of climate change, it finds itself in a situation where it is essentially immune to weather changes and climate change. They manufacture about two thirds of the water they use is actually manufactured water. And therefore they can just manufacture more of it as they need it. They become ever more efficient in agriculture. They become ever more efficient in how they use energy to create all this water. And this, this becomes a virtuous circle where more people get more involved in it, more people start inventing it, more people have a chance to turn it into business opportunities. And lo and behold, it's a model for the whole world. Wow. And so you used a really interesting term, manufactured water. What does that mean? Well, it means a few things. So, for example, if you are taking water from the Mediterranean or from any large body of water, it's likely to be salty or dirty or something. 
And Israel has, is, has developed a whole variety of extraordinary desalination techniques and the current system they use called reverse osmosis. It's a, and they figured out a way to use very low energy amounts of the energy for desalination. Uh -huh. And so therefore it's not surprising that in Israel you find the world's largest, most energy efficient, lowest carbon fuel using desalination plant in the world. Wow. And so you have that. So, so if, if you could simply segregate just the water that people use in their own homes, but they dump because it goes into the general pool of society. But if you could, it would be that 80% of the water consumed in Israeli households is desalinated water. So that's a lot of water, but they could price that to 90% or 95%. In addition, Israel, Israel leads the world by a long, long, long margin in the reuse of sewage. We think of sewage mostly as a nuisance, as a bother, as something yeah. that's something to be gotten rid of. In Israel, they see it as an opportunity. And so starting in the early 1950s, they began thinking about how they could capture as much sewage as possible, not dump it, treat it to a super high level, and then find a way to reuse it. What do we do in the United States? I mean, it's a little bit crazy. We comply with, <laughs> we comply with a, a law passed in 1972, the Clean Water Act, yep. which I talk about in Troubled Water. We comply with the Clean Water Act. We take our sewage. We treat it to a pretty good level. I mean, it gets pretty clean. And then what do we do? And then we dump it in a waterway. We dump yep. it in the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean or a local lake or a local river. We dump it. Yeah. We don't, reuse, we don't reuse it. So in Israel, they reuse over 85% of their sewage for other purposes. I'll talk about that in a second what they use it for. In America, it's about 6%. The second leading country in the world after Israel, which is 86%, is Spain with 17%. Wow. So, th so think about that. Think about that, of, what, of how much water is wasted every day. And then throughout all of the Israeli agricultural story, flood irrigation is banned in Israel for more than 50 years now. They are very, very careful with how they make use of water. Everybody who grows things or uses water for industry is mindful of the fact that they're going to make very, very smart, efficient, technologically wise use of their water. So these are some of the techniques that Israel has used. And every single one of these, certainly America could use, and most countries in the world, even some of the poorest countries in the world, could be doing a lot of what we're talking about here today. Yeah. Well, and one of the significant pieces that you said was they're actually paying the true cost of the water. Yes, which yes. that in itself can be significantly transforming, I would guess, because all of a sudden, if you're paying a lot for water, because that's what it costs to get it to you, you're going to think twice about how you, send, you spend it. And if you're a municipality, which now gets the water for free, but now you have to pay for your water, you're going to fix all your leaks. So Israel, mm. has, other than Singapore, is the lowest amount of percentage of leaks anywhere in the world. Wow. And 9% of their water is lost to leaks. Whereas in the U.S., it's about a third. In the Chicago oh. suburbs, it's about 40%. Wow. In Malaysia, in, you know, in Indonesia, it's as much as 65%. Malaysia, similarly. And, and so you have, you have vast, and I, I'll take other examples, in Iran, which has spent you know, billions and billions of dollars crazily pursuing nuclear weapons. Instead of building out intelligent water systems, they use 95% of their fresh water for agriculture. And why is that? because farmers get their energy for free. They're encouraged to keep pumping water. They pump water and they misallocate that water use. They leave the wow. pumps on overnight and, and water spaces. Likewise in Egypt, which has a big water yep. problem now, the Nile River. And, and I could talk about this in country after country and, and actually in region of the United States after one after another. And so if we can get smart and serious about how we're gonna be clever about how we use our water, we can actually push off for a very long time 
water crises that are seem to be brewing here in the United States. Uh, seem to be. <laughs> They're in our face here in the desert, desert yes. southwest. So I, I don't want to skip past. You said talk about what Israel does with sewage. Oh, yeah. So what Israel does with sewage, it's really wonderful. As I start to say, is that lots of places think of just as a, as a problem. So in Israel, in about 1952, the country was four years old, and they began talking about the fact that, yes, we have more than enough water today, but we could see a day, they say, when we won't have enough water. And if we don't have enough water, where are we going to get it from? And so they began a process of learning how to treat water to this ultra-high pure level. Mm-hmm. And then knowing that people won't feel comfortable drinking that water, they spent 25 years and billions of dollars building out a parallel national water infrastructure system. And they transport that once upon a time foul water, treated now to a very high pure level, uh, drinkable actually, and they transport it to farms where it's been reused for crops of different kinds. And so that same molecule, I can almost jokingly say that, you know, somebody sitting in his apartment in Tel Aviv has a tomato with, you know, in his salad at dinner. And, you know, depending on how old he is, you know, either 20 minutes later or a couple hours later, he, you know, nature calls. Right. And, and then, uh, you know, and then it goes to the collection point called the sewage and it's treated to an ultra high pure level. And then, and then it's transported back down to the Negev desert where, they grow, they lead the world in dry lands agriculture and grow tomatoes. And then it's shipped back to Tel Aviv and somebody sits down for dinner a few months later. He looks down at his dinner plate and he says, don't I know you from somewhere? You, know, <laughs> you look familiar to me. Yeah. And, and that cycle continues on and on and on. Likewise, someone takes a shower and instead of that water being lost forever, that water is treated and reused for agriculture. And that's sort of like the theory of somebody, you know, having a bathtub full of water and then scooping it all out and watering their their flowers with it. Well, in yeah. Israel, they actually do that on a national scale. Nice. Yeah. And in permaculture, we call that regenerative processes. Yes. So excellent. And I, I don't want to skip something here that's really important. I am a huge proponent of drip irrigation but not the standard drip irrigation like you'd find in everybody's yard. The one I've been using for years is called drip tape. And the cool thing about drip tape, and it runs at, it runs at 10 PSI, which up until today I thought was pretty good, it pressurizes evenly through the entire system so that everything gets watered evenly. So there's a lot of great things about drip tape. But you came along and introduced me to something called N-drip that yeah. is less than one PSI to make it run. So tell us about that technology, because that, that is yet another technology that you're exploring. Well, this is not a technology that I would suggest you would want to be using in your yard. Uh, ah, you know, okay. keep, please, please keep using your drip tape for as long as you'd like. Okay. But, but what I will say to you and to your listeners is the fact that there is a, a, a new technology on the horizon, actually it's here, and that it is a transformational technology that has the opportunity to change the way we think about water in agriculture. And if I, if I may, without getting into too much detail, express, share with your listeners how we grow things around the world today. Please. There is, around the world, there are h- hundreds of millions of farmers, everything from people who have vast tracts to people who have an acre or so. And uh, there are, around the world, three point five billion acres that are used to grow things on, whether it's wow. fiber or food. And the food could be for humans or animals. 
And of, the, of that amount of acreage, 3.5 billion acres, about a little more than 20%, about 700 million, call it, of those acres need to be irrigated because there isn't enough rainfall for that. Mm-hmm. Now, the U.S. Geological Survey, a part of the U.S. government, is estimating now that that 700 million number will rise to about close to 800 million within the next 10 years because of population growth. That is to say you need more food and more fiber yeah. for more to grow, you know, give people clothing. And also because of climate change, that more areas that currently get a lot of rain won't get enough rain. So, so, but let's just take the number we have today, 700 million. Of that 700 million, 85% of that vast number of acres, 85% utilize an ancient irrigation technology called flood irrigation. And if you, yep. can, if you can transport yourself momentarily back to fifth grade or seventh grade, wherever your social studies unit took you, took you to learn about ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're talking about a four to 5,000 year old technology where they would flood the banks of the Nile or the Tigris or Euphrates rivers, and they would dig ditches to transport the water. And then the fields would be planted and the crops would germinate and they would grow. And then after a few days, all the water would disappear and the fields would crack. We've all seen those pictures. And then they would flood the field anew and they would do this five, six, seven times until the crop was ready for harvest. Sad to say, that technology is still the dominant form of irrigation technology in the world, flood technology. But now I should very quickly introduce two other two other concepts to your listeners, and that is center pivot, which is if you've ever flown over the United States, you look down at your window, you see these large circles in the fields in Nebraska and Iowa and places like that. Those are generally about 120 to 180 acre farms or farm plots that are irrigated by a very energy intensive sprinkler system, which a rotating arm that goes round and round. That's what the circles come from. And the and the other and that's about twelve percent of global irrigation. Wow. And then the final piece, the final irrigation technology, also invented in Israel about sixty years ago, is called it's called drip irrigation. And that drip tape of yours is an outgrowth of that idea. Uh-huh. And and it's a wonderful technology in that it saves vast amounts of water. It saves fifty to seventy percent of the water used under flood irrigation. And you get paradoxically, despite the fact you're using so much less water you actually get a larger yield for reasons we can talk about later if you'd like, but you get a yield increase of from 15 to 40% and sometimes even higher than that. And so it's, it's incredible, except it requires a very expensive installation and it then requires an ongoing and very significant amount of electricity or diesel or some other form of fuel mm-hmm. or energy to, to propel the water across the field to get the drippers working. And that was the state of play until about three years ago. And about three, four years ago, I was speaking at a conference in Milwaukee and someone I had interviewed at length for my book, Let There Be Water, was backstage also planning to speak. And we just were catching up and he tells me that he's finishing an invention that he's been working on for 20 years. And it is the best of, best of drip irrigation, which is to say it saves much of the water of flood irrigation and increases yield. But... Somehow or another, through some magical means, with a PSI of less than one, you were saying that your drip tape is a PSI of 10. 10, exactly. With the PSI of one, which is basically to say zero energy, he has invented a system that can propel across a field of any size, up to 1,800 feet long. Wow. And drip irrigate that entire field with 
zero energy cost. And he can install it so inexpensively that farmers of commodity products like cotton and alfalfa and sorghum and potatoes and rice and wheat and corn and you name it, any field crop can easily utilize the system and recoup the investment within a single season. Wow. That and is a hell of a, a return on investment. Yeah, I'll say. And I said to him, you know, I've mentioned earlier that I had a pretty good life and I had a business that I ran, but I didn't mention I'd sold it and I devoted myself to public service. And, and so, you know, I'm thinking to myself, this is pretty amazing. And I said to him, well, you know, if you are looking for investors, let me know when you're looking for investors. About a year later, he called me up and he said, I, I, I finally perfected it. It's working. I, I'd love to show you a working model of it. Uh, he did. He showed it to me. And I told him that same day, let me know when I can write you a check. I want to be wow. an investor here. And then what happened was I was an investor and I kept investing a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And, a lot more. and then I, I'm the type of person who likes to share ideas and uh, kept sharing with the inventor and the CEO he hired, who's a fabulous, magnificent, very, very talented CEO. And then a few months ago, they said to me, you know, you're basically working for us full time. Why don't you, why don't we, you know, why don't we stop dating and get married already? Right. So, uh, so they said, pick a title of any job in the company you'd like that isn't already taken. And it's yours. So I said, well, the only job I'd want to be is chief sustainability officer. because that's, that's, that's the only thing I care about. But right. uh, and then, I, then I decided I was writing another book. I decided to put that on hold and, and, and instead work on this for, for a couple of years until I get bored again and move on again. Nice. Wow. And uh, there, you know, there's so many places I could go with that. Yeah. What a, what a great invention. I guess that's what I have to say about that. That's the, and these it, are the it, kinds of things that we need to be doing. Yeah. And, and so it is a great invention. And it's the kind of thing that the inventor isn't just somebody who just showed up on the scene. He is somebody who he's Israeli or Israeli professor. He was the former water commissioner of Israel. He had a groundbreaking approach to water management in the country. He helped get the country through a severe, severe drought so that people didn't really feel the difference in mm -hmm. their lives very much. And then he turned his attention to a longstanding problem that he saw, which was that we were just wasting too much, too much water, water from flood irrigation. And, yeah. and just think about this, just to give you, your, your listeners a sense of what we're talking about and water savings. When, when a farmer converts from flood irrigation to the NDRIP system, he or she, the farmer, will save between 325,000 gallons and 550,000 gallons per season per acre. Wow. Now, I said, er, I said earlier that there are 580 million acres that are flood irrigated in the world today. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't have a calculator on me right now, but can somebody please multiply out 550,000 times <laughs> times? 580 million and what number of gallons do we come up with a year save? Yeah. And in Arizona, you know, we're not just talking about the developing world. Arizona has about between eight and nine hundred thousand acres that are flood irrigated. Yes, Cali we do. California, uh, you know, around the corner has four million acres that are flood irrigated. So think about in the middle of a drought, the, the second and first and second most water consumptive crops are alfalfa and cotton. Yep. And it is still the policy of farmers everywhere to grow these crops because they are needed for society. And this is what farmers are encouraged to do. And we should encourage them to do this. But we should discourage them from doing it with the most water intensive means possible and substituting out very low cost technology that can save them and society 
a coming headache. Yeah, it's not very far off either. Well, it may not be. I mean, if it doesn't start <laughs> raining like Noah, forty days and forty nights, we're gonna we're gonna be facing a pretty significant problem. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So that is a huge amount of data for you to share with us. Thank you for that. As a homeowner in Phoenix, Arizona, what are some things that I can do to make a difference here? Because that's really what we're trying to do. Well, the most important thing you can do, look, you've got a pretty big, you know, megaphone here with this podcast. Yep. And you've, got, you've got a lot of followers and a lot of people listen to your show. And if I may say, I mean, uh, you know, I have a nasty habit of telling people what they should do. But since you just asked me, I guess I can get away with it, you know, is make this maybe make this a theme of your show. You know, it doesn't mean mm. every single podcast has to be on the same topic, but yep. but integrate more regularly what we can do about water savings and have mm. on your show elected officials uh, and, and, and public officials, appointed officials. And people from the Central Arizona Project, which is your state water utility, and ask them, what are you doing to help us get that better water future that we are going to need or else we're going to have a gun to our heads? You know, ask them that question. Ask them what they're doing to make sure that we can preserve agriculture, because that's the next logical step. They're going to start banning agriculture. Right. And why is that, why is that either fair to the farmers or why is that even Financially right? viable. Yeah, and why, and why is it even good for us to live in a society which is only, you know, tract houses and... and and office buildings. Why do we want that? Yeah. So, so, so I think that that's something that you can be doing. But if you were speaking more micro than that, like what you can be doing, well, there's always the, you know, shorter showers and fixing leaks type type of, of mindset. But, but I think that educating yourself and educating your listeners and then demanding changes of our elected officials are the single most important things that we can be doing. Because I, I said earlier that I don't believe in an authoritarian command choices for democratic societies and you want people to understand what the issues are you want them to be able to make sacrifices when they need to because they want to yeah. but you also want to be able to in offer choices to them where they don't have to feel like they are sacrificing they can live a better life just by virtue of the fact that the people who we elect to look out for us and to think about our future are doing that in the world of water wow that's a powerful statement people that we elect are looking out for us I hope there's yeah. some. I hope there's some awesome politicians out there listening to that. Well, you know what? Bring them on your show next week or the <laughs> week after, and, and ask them that question. I, yeah. I, I think, I think the, I think the, the rumor is that politicians like to have audiences, so give it a shot. There you go. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Oh wow, that's a painful question. Um, <laughs> Look, I'm a businessman, so I've mostly, you know, I, I've mostly had more successes than failures. And it's not that way. I've had, I've certainly had failures in business, and I've learned from, you know, it's a cliche, but I think it's true that you learn far more from your failures than your successes. But if I may take a turn on the question that may not have been what you intended, I, I think that I've learned more from my interpersonal failures mm. than I have even from my business failures, where I've learned. And that may not be what you're, what you're looking for, what your listeners are are, are listening for, but. But I think that it's important, you know, all of us have relationships that have not worked out, whether with friends or with siblings or with others or with neighbors. And I think it's important to be introspective in those situations and say to yourself, why did it not work out? What was it about? What was it about them? But also, what was it about me? Mm -hmm. what, what might I have done differently? And I think we are who we are. And we're not going to none of us are going to radically change who we are. But I think at the margins, if we can be more self-aware about, about what we can do and how we can live our lives in a slightly different way, I think we can 
perhaps have a very different uh, outcome the next time we're in a similar yeah. situation. So maybe maybe those failures of the interpersonal kind are the ones that I, I find are perhaps the most revealing and the most valuable to me. Amen to that. And what do you consider your biggest success? <laughs> I have found it best, while I do like to examine and be introspective about failures, I find myself not oftentimes looking at my successes and I just take them in stride and for granted. I've done, I've been involved in some extraordinarily large business deals and those have been very satisfying, I suspect in the moment, but I try to not dwell on it or celebrate it and try to just move on and move to the next. So, so I'm not one who really focuses on successes that much, but if I would have to, if I would have to be pushed, I would again push it into the interpersonal realm and say that I'm married to an extraordinary woman. Mm-hmm. I've been married for more than 41 years. And Congratulations. I, I admire her and respect her and love her probably more today even than I did on our wedding day. So so I would say that that would probably be my greatest personal success. Wow. I don't know if she would share all those thoughts, <laughs> but but at least for me that you know that I've been able to keep her by my side for yeah. all these years is really to my mind my my probably my greatest because we also have three three children, three really wonderful children. And, and that's not to be taken for granted either. So yeah. that's probably a, a portion of that great success, but I'd give her a lot more credit for that than, than I would take for myself. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. And what drives you? You know, I think I'm driven by a desire to never take things for granted and never be sitting still for too long. I'm constantly driven by the idea of self-improvement. Any day in which I have not learned something new that I can utilize in an intelligent way, whether introspectively or in my life, any day in which I haven't moved the ball forward in whatever venture, whether it's not for profit or for profit that I'm working on, is a bad day for me. And, and you know, it, it doesn't mean that I'm very good at, so to speak, classically relaxing. My forms of relaxation are not very relaxing. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I, I, until COVID, I was in training to compete in a international ping pong tournament. So I was working with oh, a coach nice. many times a week. And mm-hmm. I was like, it, it, it's hard work. So I don't really, I don't really relax very well, but I do find myself feeling very satisfied by having a sense of of achievement and a productive life. I, I think I've lived a happy life, but I don't really know what happiness is, but I do know what productivity is. And I aspire to be productive every day of my life. Wow. Awesome. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Oh, do I really have to limit to one book? Oh, well, I let's start re- with one. I, I love reading so much that, you know, okay, if we have to pick one and only one, I mean, so I won't, I won't talk about my favorite novels. I won't talk about my favorite biographies, but I will. Okay, I'll tell you what I think is is the book that it. How about if I talk about the book that has changed my life more than any other? How that's about that? That's what I'm looking for. Okay, so it may not be my favorite book because it's not a book that's easy to read. It's a very hard book to read. It was written originally in German, and the translations are all very hard to follow. But the book that has most changed my life is a book called "I and Thou," written by the. German Jewish later became Israeli. He was chased out of Germany thanks to the to the persecution of that era, uh, and, the, and the, he got out before the Holocaust. His name was Martin Buber. He was he's mostly I think forgotten today. But when he died, hard to believe this that a philosopher and a theologian, his his death was reported on the front page of the New York Times. Wow. So in his in his era, he was an important philosopher. His name was Martin Buber, and the book's called I and Thou. And you said and why. 
because Buber, Buber presents the idea that there are two kinds of relationships. There are I-it relationships and I-thou relationships. And I-it relationships are those where we objectify the other party, where we kind of use them as a means to an end. And we all do that. I mean, we go insane if, you know, you pull up the gas station and the guy's pulling the gas. You're not going to ask him about his family history and, you know, you know, all those types of things. You know, or you're, you know, you're, you know, fast food drive through and you're, you know, <laughs> you're not going to find out everything about that person in that situation either. But what he's, he, but he says that in every situation that you are in, you have the opportunity to objectify the person or to find the common humanity between you and them or I and thou. And because human beings are inherently selfish, I believe, and we are basically find it very easy to objectify other people and to use them for, for goals that will help us achieve what we want or what we want at that moment. I find it a very helpful corrective to have Buber's thoughts about I and thou whispering in my ear on a regular basis to remind me of the fact that it's important to keep that kind of relationship. And, and I want to hasten to add, because I just gave two very trivial examples of a gas station attendant at drive through It applies also to people whom we love. It applies certainly to you and me. It applies to my wife and me. It applies to my children and me. It applies to business associates and me. Even people you see all the time, oldest of friends and, and aged aunts and uncles, because it's easy to objectify everybody. Honey, I'm home. I'm hungry. You know, when's dinner? That's not exactly an I-thou moment. That's an I-it moment. Right. And we have to try to force ourselves to think about how we can turn every moment into an I-thou moment. And because he's, I mentioned he's a philosopher and a theologian, and he, he, he presents the idea that God is in that intersection, in that moment of the I and thou between me and you, when we are able to find a way of having our hearts or our souls, you know, come together. Wow. That's extraordinary. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad to. Glad to. Boober is, is a person who the world could use a lot more of. Yeah. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Yeah, I guess the final piece of advice is something that I use myself, which is, which is just keep moving. Don't dwell on slights. Don't dwell on, on, on things that annoy you. Just keep moving. And I, I used to find, you know, like everybody, like, like many people, I would say that you know, things would happen that would annoy me and I would sort of think about it for some time. And then it would come to a point where I found, I, I, I knew that I didn't like a person, but I couldn't remember what they had done. You know? Right. <laughs> like, like what, what was it again that got me to so think that they were such jerks, you know? And then I realized, you know, it's, it's just not worth the energy to do all that. So, <laughs> right. So, so surround yourself with people. I guess the other advice is surround yourself with people who challenge you, who encourage you, who inspire you. And try to stay away from people who don't do those things for you, you know, and to focus on, you know, to push yourself to what's next and not to dwell on the small things that have, you know, get under your skin at the moment. We all, again, we, I think we all have that, but it's, it's mostly not worth the time or the trouble to dwell on that. And, and, yeah. and, and, and that allows, given my interest in being productive, that allows me to be productive by not wasting a lot of time or dwelling on silliness. One of my favorite sayings from about 30 years ago is you can be right or you can be happy. <laughs> well, I think you're right, and I think you're happy. So there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Seth. Great. I'm glad to be here, and I hope this gets a lot of your listeners interested in water issues in a way that they might not have been before. Amen to that. And how can our listeners get a hold of you, find your books? 
Well, a lot of ways. Uh, my, my, I have a new book that just came out called Other People's Words. It's kind of a motivational book. I've been a lifelong quotations collector and thousands of quotations. And my, my editor at St. Martin's Press, part of Macmillan, asked me if I would consider digging through those quotations wow. and coming up with a way of organizing them in such a way that it kind of becomes a self-help book or a motivational work. And so I went through a couple of thousand quotations, pulled out about 12, 1300 of the best ones that were most relevant, organized it into a system, an organized system that helps you to understand how you can live a better life yourself, be more, more productive and better to yourself and better to others. And so that book, like along with Troubled Water, which is about America's drinking water and the health crisis that I mm -hmm. think will come from it. And finally, the book we've talked a lot about today, Let There Be Water. All three of those are still very much on sale. They're all three in print. You get them on, Google, on, on Amazon, of course, and you can Google yeah. the titles and get them. You can also reach out to me. I love communicating with people. I try to respond to every email within a day of receiving it. You can reach out to me at my website, which is www.sethmsegel.com. Www.sethmsegel.com, and I'm also active on Twitter at Seth M. Siegel. And I love the dialogue. I love hearing from people. And please share your views and share your experience with me. Wow. Well, once again, thank you, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been eye-opening for me. Well, thank you, Farmer Greg. It's kind of you to say. <laughs> you bet. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Seth M. Siegel. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.